0: You're listening to the Connect Over Coffee podcast, the show that brings you hope and inspires you to embrace the spirit of overcoming. Each month, we deliver the latest and greatest information on progress and advances in ovarian cancer screening, diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. Now here's your host, Runsi Sen. Let's
1: connect over coffee. Hello, Overcomers, and welcome to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. I'm Runsi, the founder of Overcome, and today we are joined by a very special guest, Dr. BJ Raimel. So Dr. Raimel is a gynecologic oncologist and, and a surgeon, and she is the medical director of the Cedar sinai Cancer Clinical Trials Office. And in that role, she serves as a medical liaison between clinical trial pr- principal investigators and Cedar sinai cancer leadership to ensure the quality of services provided to overcomers. So we have a lot to chat with her today, focusing on a deeper understanding of ovarian cancer, clinical trials, as well as disparities that exist and how to overcome them. So grab your favorite beverage, I have mine, and join us for this thought-provoking discussion as we chat with Dr. Rimel. And if you have any questions as we go along, please type in the comment sections below and we will get it addressed post the discussion. And as I always say, please share this information far and wide with anyone who may benefit from all these pearls of wisdom and the great insights she's about to share with us today. And before we get started, just my on my end, um, apologies because I'm a cold. And uh, I, if if we get interrupted with coughs and sneezes, you know, as they literally say, the show must go on. So so, so will we. And so as you can see, um, I have a cold and she's Dr. Solomon, but we'll get started <laughs> with that. It's her son's name. And so that makes us go viral today, doesn't it? So with that, a huge welcome to you, Dr. Rimel, to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. An honor to have you with us.
0: Thank you so much. It's very exciting for me to be here.
1: Thank you. So You know, before we get started to the many questions I have for you, um, just to get us off on on this track. So we know that ovarian cancer is not one disease, and there are many types and subtypes that can determine the treatment path. So can you tell us, you know, what percentage of patients fall under the platinum-resistant versus platinum-sensitive ovarian cancers? And what is the pathology, what is the progression of these two different types of ovarian cancers? If you could just shed some light on that.
0: Sure. So there are, as you mentioned, many histologies, which is basically different types of cells that were originally part of the ovaries that become cancerous. And they are divided into the surface of the ovary cells, the inside of the ovary cells, cells that were uh, designed originally to be part of egg production or even eggs themselves, Um, And those are the different types of ovarian cancer. And each of them has a particular sort of natural sensitivity to our platinum-based drugs. And so that's where we get the terminology, platinum sensitivity, meaning that those types of cancers are likely to respond to platinum agents. Now, as everybody probably already knows, unfortunately, not all of these uh, cancer types will respond to platinum drugs. The most common type of ovarian cancer is called high grade serous, not serious, it is serious, but it's called serous epithelial ovarian cancer. So, high grade serous ovarian cancer is the most common type. It accounts for about 75% of cases, and it is the most platinum sensitive. And most patients, when they're initially diagnosed, are treated with a platinum drug, usually carboplatinum, and they're uh, about 75 to 80% sensitive, okay? So meaning that the whole population as a whole, not in each individual, but a whole population as a whole, about 75% to 80% of those people will be um, platinum sensitive, which leaves 15 to 20% of patients that really aren't platinum sensitive in the frontline setting. And that's really challenging. Now, what happens to those people that are already platinum sensitive? So they have a remission that we define as at least six months. but then if their cancer comes back, the question is, can we retreat them with platinum again? Because they were sensitive in the past. And the answer is, if it's been six months, we usually give it a shot. But the proportion of patients who have tumors that are still platinum sensitive decreases. And so in the second line setting, you know, it's really more like 40 to 50% of patients that are platinum sensitive. And if there's a third line of platinum given, it becomes even greater. So you can imagine that these types of cancers, if they're treated with the same drugs over and
1: over, um, slowly over time, become more resistant to platinum-based agents. Yeah. Thank you for the clarification. So also, you know, uh, we learn more about the uh, HR proficiencies in ovarian cancer. So can you tell us more about each type of HR-proficient ovarian cancer and what are the treatments that are available today based on these two categories?
0: Sure. So HR stands for homologous recombination, which is a specific type of DNA repair. So as we go out through our lives, there are multiple types of ways that our DNA is damaged, and thankfully, we have many mechanisms within the cell to repair it. For ovarian cancers, we know that the DNA repair machinery is pretty messed up, and it's one of the ways that we can target these cancers by giving drugs that further mess up the DNA repair machinery and cause the cancer cells to die. Homologous recombination is one of the most common types of DNA damage repair mechanisms that's messed up in ovarian cancer cells, and and patients now have options to have a tumor test for homologous recombination. Um, The test is not perfect, but it's a pretty good representation if that tumor itself of that particular type of cancer uh, has that DNA damage defect or if it's intact. So cells that are proficient, meaning that they can repair using that pathway are called HRP or homologous recombination proficient. And cells that don't have that uh, mechanism intact are called homologous recombination deficient or HRD. Now we have some drugs, PARP inhibitors specifically, that seem to work better in in tumors that are homologous recombination deficient. So they further amplify that DNA damage uh, machinery defect. And those drugs can be really helpful. For homologous recombination proficient patients, which is about 50% of our ovarian cancer patients, We don't have drugs that specifically target that that proficiency, but we're looking at other markers that don't really overlap with that particular thing. So for example, there was a recent FDA approval of mervituximab sorvanstein that is uh, useful regardless of uh, homologous recombination defect because it's looking at a different marker. It's targeted to folate receptor alpha, um, which has nothing to do with DNA damage repair. So there are new drugs uh, that are available for homologous recombination proficient or HRP patients. Um, and that's one of the examples.
1: So I'll just ask you a very a basic question. So sounds like um, they have their own, you know, um, uh, uniqueness when it comes to the, um, the type of ovarian cancer. So how are the different from BRCA mutations?
0: Sure. So BRCA mutations are either a germline mutation, meaning it's something that's inherited that you get from one of your parents, yeah. or BRCA mutations are spontaneous within the tumor. The most common type in ovarian cancer is actually inherited, and it counts for 17 to 25-ish percent, depending on where you live, uh, of the ovarian cancers um, that's inherited. Now, those BRCA mutations um, make the tumors themselves, very susceptible to DNA damage, thus the arising of breast and ovarian tumors in these patients. But also um, it means that they're it's usually
1: exquisitely sensitive to other drugs that further damage the DNA. So again, I'm, I'm just gonna delve a little deeper before we go on to my next question is between the HR um, you know, proficiencies and the BRCA mutations, right? So you are saying that um, BRCA, as we know, that you know, of 17 to 25 percent can be inherited, but in the HR proficiencies, is there any inheritance factor here, or is it not? Or it has- does not seem to be that we have discovered that. Yeah. Okay. So homologous
0: recombination deficient patients may be BRCA positive, right? They may have germline or spontaneous uh, mutations but homologous recombination, proficient patients, there's not an identified hereditary cause for those patients.
1: Is that definitive or is that, like you said, it's not, we don't know yet. I mean, it, Well, yeah. as a scientist,
0: I wouldn't say that it's impossible, but it's certainly not been discovered at this moment. And at least with traditional genetic tex- techniques, yeah. I don't know that there's a suggestion of this.
1: Yeah, You know, the reason I ask is because, you know, there are, we have talked to patients and in my case personal history as well i'm we are brc, I'm BRC and brc negative and i've talked to other patients that have been brca negative but with a strong family history of ovarian cancer that go on to develop ovarian cancer after a few years of you know uh, their mom or their sister and so there is no clear you know answer to how that happened because that person was brca negative so i'm just trying to figure out you know must be that there are some things that we are still missing in the genetic component um, yeah, absolutely.
0: Genetic, environmental, things that are other, you know, there are other exposures that are shared in families. And there's right. a lot that we don't know and a lot that we don't study because the funding is really directed towards very specific things. Mm-hmm. But I would say that at least at this moment, I'm not aware for homologous recombination proficient patients, a, a clear inherited thing. Now, we know there are lots of these sort of, they're called single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs. And if you get a bunch of those in a row that, that are particularly moving your genome towards a particular cancer, they can increase the risk. Yeah. Uh, but even with bracket carriers, right? Some bracket carriers will never get ovarian cancer. And we don't really understand why somebody can have a mutation that's that, you know, significant and one person will get a cancer and one person won't. So there's just a lot we don't know.
1: Exactly. Thank you. So um... Just talking about PARP a little bit because it continues to change the landscape of ovarian cancer treatment. Um, Can you please share with us, you know, any latest advances happening in the space of PARP inhibitors um, and in combination therapy? And I know we have, I've read recent articles on how PARP is getting limited in the front line. I mean, um, and you know, all the press about PARP. So can you tell us a little more about what the latest is? Sure,
0: so this is a very complicated and sort of ever-changing space. Right now, the FDA indications are clear for BRCA carriers. So for those patients that have an ovarian cancer and a germline or somatic BRCA mutation, uh, PARP inhibitors are indicated in first-line maintenance, so right after the completion of chemotherapy. It's also indicated in second-line and maintenance if the patient hasn't had a PARP inhibitor previously, okay? Yeah. So if you have had your first uh, cancer a long time ago, uh, those things are available. After that, it gets very confusing. So some uh, we have some data that it's still okay to treat patients that haven't received a PARP inhibitor previously, that are BRCA positive in multiple later lines, but uh, some of the data that we have uh, about treating homologous recombination deficient patients, so they don't have a BRCA mutation, but their genome suggests that there's some kind of homologous recombination deficiency in later lines, so second maintenance and as treatment um, uh, in uh, two or three lines past, those FDA indications have been voluntarily uh, removed. And so that's because some of the data suggests that there may be a decrease in overall survival. Now it's really hard to interpret this because the studies were never powered to detect this difference. So we really don't understand if what we're seeing is truly related to the PARP inhibitor or related to something else that happened in the context of these folks, um, having been you know, closely monitored or more likely to pick one later treatment or another or interaction that we don't see. I mean, we just do not understand this phenomenon, and we're not sure that it's real because the statistics were not powered. And what that means really is that there are not enough people um, who've received these drugs in close surveillance in with very close follow-up for us to really understand what these emerging data mean. However, that said, all three PARC inhibitors uh, had some, you know, that's a laparib, norepirib, rucaparib, uh, that were approved for ovarian cancer have had some suggestion of this data, and so pretty much everybody has kind of moved out of the HR-proficient space in the second line or later. Um, something that's new or newer about PARP inhibitors is the use of PARP inhibitors plus bevacizumab, specifically Olaparib with bevacizumab, which was part of the PELO-1 study, uh, which demonstrated that for the patients that had a, a homologous recombination deficiencies, so HRD patients, those treated with a and bevacizumab together did better than those treated with bevacizumab alone. Now we don't know what the contribution was of laprib alone because that study was sort of missing that arm. Um, but it did win them the approval there, and it's a pretty exciting combination to be able to offer to patients. Um, so that's you know uh, one of the more new things
1: that's uh, come out. Thank you. So uh, you lead clinical trials at uh, Cedar sinai So, you know, um, very important for all our overcomers to understand and know and learn more about clinical trials. So um, as the uh, leader in this space, what gaps have you seen when it comes to overall knowledge and interest in clinical trials and how these trials are implemented and how would you improve the accessibility of clinical trials for our overcomers nationwide and worldwide?
0: Got it. Okay. So first, what are the gaps? So the major gaps that I see in practice are mostly folks understanding what the context of a clinical trial is in their care. So when patients are receiving their cancer care at a center that does clinical trials, they may have access to trials that are what we call later phase trials or earlier phase trials. So um, that means that the, the drug has been studied for either a long period of time, and it's being compared to the standard of care, or an early phase trial where the drug is just coming out, we're learning about it, we're figuring out if it's safe, we're learning things about its efficacy, but we don't have the sort of thousands and thousands of patient data that we have going into a phase three or a later line trial. So what are the options? And when pati- what a lot of patients don't maybe know is that all of these trials are... Um, are good options depending on where you are in the scope of your cancer care. So most phase two and three trials are looking for a population that's fairly narrow. They need to study patients that are more alike than different. And so they're looking for usually a very specific histology, maybe a very specific molecular profile, specific gene mutation, or a specific number of lines of treatment. So if you've had you know chemotherapy once, twice, three different times, those differences make differences in how cancers respond to therapy. And the clinical trials are written so that they can study people that are more alike than they are different. And that means that those studies are usually more limited and have more criteria. Early phase studies, like phase one studies, um, are often very broad. They're looking at really more safety questions rather than efficacy questions. And so for somebody that has lots of good standard of care options or a good phase three trial option, those may not be the right studies. But for somebody that's had five, six lines of therapy, or who's kind of at the end of what's available in standard of care, a phase one study may be an opportunity to continue to be treated and participate in some exciting science. Phase one studies are a real challenge because they often have a lot of Requirements. The patient may have to come in often and things like that, Um, but they really represent an opportunity for patients to participate in the cutting edge. This is the brand new stuff that's coming out. A patient may not benefit from a clinical trial, regardless of the clinical trials phase, because these are experiments. These are us trying to find new treatments to save our patients. And sometimes they don't work. Um, And that's really hard um, to explain to patients, but most of my patients that um, have participated in standard care recognize that not every drug is going to work for them in the same way that not every clinical trial is going to work for them. And then the last gap that I want to go over is the placebo. So a lot of my patients say, well, I don't want to be randomized to a placebo. And there really are not placebos in cancer care. That would be unethical. We have a deadly disease. We need to treat it. The only time that a placebo is considered appropriate is if we're giving a standard of care as the randomized option. So in these later line studies where we're trying to, you know, randomly assign people to different uh, types of therapy, one of the types that we're comparing it to is the standard of care. And so patients may participate in a study that's considered, you know, a standard of care plus a placebo instead of getting the experimental drug. And those patients are, you know, incredibly, we're incredibly grateful to them because without them, we'll never know if the drug is
1: really effective or not. And that's a really good point to clarify that, you know, when we say placebo, we actually mean standard of care um, because they are not going off of any kind of treatment. They're not being, you know, what is important, like you said, in a serious disease like ovarian cancer, you cannot not have that as an option where you're not treating the patient. So um, it is the standard of care, which is equal to a placebo. So that's good to know. And so, you know, we recently ran a survey um, about clinical trials, uh, you know, and the majority of our overcomers basically said we had an option where, you know, what is important to you when it comes to clinical trials, we gave them a few options. So the one that uh, surfaced to the top was the site and the principal investigator, credibility of the principal investigator and the sites as the most, two most important attributes um, in choosing a clinical trial. However, we also know that, you know, location is primarily important because patient, it's hard for patients when they're going through something like this to consider travel or other things. And just cancer is only one part of someone's life because they also have families, they have other obligations. So it's not easy. But it was interesting for us to see that location wasn't the primary attribute. It was actually the principal investigator and the site, the credibility of uh, of the site. Do you have anything else to add to this reflection that our overcomers have already shared with us?
0: I think that's really fascinating actually. And I think that um, there's a lot to learn from how you know, the population who we're trying to serve feels about what we're doing. It's so valuable and I would just say thank you to all the people that participated in that survey. I think that one of the things about site credibility or PI credibility um, is not surprising. I mean, because when people are coming to participate in a clinical trial, they want to know that the person that's administering the drug is going to be well knowledgeable about the patients themselves and also about the drug and what the kinds of situations that they may encounter. Um, So that doesn't surprise me. I do think that location does play a huge role in how best patients can participate because many of the clinical trials require more visits, more time, um, maybe more lab visits, Some of the clinical trials do have options to help patients pay for some of these visits. Um, There may be options for helping reimburse travel. There may be um, other types of things that the study sponsor may be able to do. Not all trials have that kind of funding, but some do. Patients should be advised to ask if those things are options for them.
1: Yeah, and I also think that, you know, uh, back to the PI and the credibility issue, I think, you know, it's top of mind that when you're going through a clinical trial, like you said, should you encounter challenges or if there are questions that you have for the healthcare team, it is probably easier to access, you know, a healthcare provider or her or his or her, you know, staff members to be able to answer their questions so that's where the credibility ties in because there's more accessibility to information round the clock you know support all of those things that can get critical when you're in a clinical trial so but i thought i would share this with you because it was interesting to us as well when we saw the results so um Switching gears a little bit on clear cell ovarian cancer, and I know that you are doing a few you know, uh, trials on that. Um, so can you tell us more about this particular kind of ovarian cancer and what is an immune checkpoint inhibitor and what is their role in treating clear cell ovarian cancers um, and other chemo-resistant ovarian cancers?
0: Sure, so clear cell ovarian cancer is a subtype of the surface of the ovary type of ovarian cancer. Um, It's more rare uh, in uh, some populations, it's only about five to 7% sort of in the general population. But here in Los Angeles, where I live, where we have a large Asian population, um, that percentage is a little higher. And so in certain Asian populations, the percent of clear cell ovarian cancer goes up to 15 to 30% of ovarian cancers. So this tends to be a population, at least in where I live here in Los Angeles that we're really focused on. Um, And uh, we have a laboratory here run by Kate Lawrenson um, that is studying the um, immune uh, sort of things that happen in um, clear cell carcinomas. And some of the clear cell carcinomas seem to arise from endometriosis, which is a benign condition Um, But in some some patients, it's rare, but it happens that they will develop clear cell carcinoma over time. And we're studying that process. For clinical trials, Dr. Joyce Liu uh, is actually running a really new, exciting uh, clinical trial in clear cell carcinoma. We're participating with Dr. Joyce Liu um, in uh, studying an immune checkpoint inhibitor, pembrolizumab. An immune checkpoint inhibitor is a long name for basically uh, a drug that is activating T cells that have been silenced. Okay, so one of the ways that cancer avoids detection in the human body is to keep its, you know, keep its uh, attackers unaware of it. And immune checkpoint inhibitors basically remove this "don't kill me" sign from the cancer cells, essentially. And it turns out that some certain clear cell carcinomas seem to be super sensitive to these immune checkpoint inhibitors. Um, But not all of them are. And what we're trying to understand is if we add other drugs to immune checkpoint inhibitors, can we boost the responses that we see? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's the point of the study that Dr. Liu uh, is heading up and we are participating in. And it's a really exciting option for our patients. Clear cell carcinomas, as you mentioned, are not super sensitive to most chemotherapies. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have to think of novel ways to uh, try and attack them.
1: So just going back to your uh, response on, you know, uh, you see 15 to 30% in Los Angeles. I mean, it's it's a different Asian uh, population. So talk to us a little more about, you know, do you see unique differences in, depending on the ethnicities uh, when it comes to ovarian, types of ovarian cancers uh, people get? So, uh, yeah, we do. <laughs>
0: So LA is a super amazing multicultural place with no dominant group. And we just have a lot of every different kind of people. And it's been really wonderful to participate in doing clinical trials here because the folks that we're privileged to serve are from all kinds of different places. And so what we've seen is that there are BRCA mutations um, in lots and lots of different populations. So we have a large Eastern European Jewish population. We also have a large Korean population and there are founder mutations, inherited mutations that are common in both of those groups. Um, And we also have a large Latin American population and those uh, folks uh, have other mutations, not all, but many have mutations um, that are different too. And those are different founder mutations. And we're learning more um, now that we are really um, doing a better job focusing on equity in all of our trials uh, really trying to reach out to make sure that our, all of the biobanks and all of the studies that we're doing include a large uh, and wide group of patients, so that we can understand better
1: which groups are at different risk. And this is this is fascinating because you know, as you said, if different ethnicities have different uniqueness when it comes to ovarian cancers, then it's not just a blanket disease because. I remember when my mom got diagnosed, we just knew she had ovarian cancer. It wasn't you know, broken down to the elemental level for us. And it's important for the patient family to ask those questions as well, because I know that we didn't, because we didn't understand much of the disease to begin with To at that point in time. Now I am very well versed, but that at that point I wasn't, which is, I'm assuming is, is a case for majority of the patient families that, just get diagnosed, right? But it would be nice to know if it, the uh, healthcare team would kind of, you know, filter it down a little bit for us and say what kind of ovarian cancer, what are the, the what is the uniqueness in your type of ovarian cancer? I don't think that information is still given generously to the patient families. So. Very difficult um, because we
0: want to make sure, especially for those families who we do have a genetic test for, right? For families that have a genetic mutation, maybe BRCA1, BRCA2, RAD51C, you know, like there are several mutations, BRIP one you know, all these new mutations too, that we could say, oh, this particular cancer had this particular heritable mutation. We'd like to make sure that everybody gets tested, men and women alike. And we have not cracked that code yet. I mean, we really—I um, agree with you. As providers, we're not as focused um, on the patient's families, I think, as we need to be, uh, in disseminating that information, making sure that patients know what type of cancer they have and what the heritable risk is. And then for patients for whom there is no identified heritable risk, letting them know, you know, hey, we've done this testing, we don't see anything here, and so you don't have to spin your wheels you know trying to get testing you know we've we've done that and we don't see anything so i think that it's really important um and i do wish more patient families would bring it up um because as providers we're just very focused on the person in front of us and the patients that we're caring for sometimes i never get the opportunity to meet people who may live somewhere else Who would really benefit from this type of information? And because of the way that our privacy laws work, and for good reason, we can't just, you know, cold call them. I do do really wish that um, this type of information was more available.
1: Okay. So, um... If you were someone diagnosed with ovarian cancer, just you know, just thinking from our own perspective, what are some of the questions you would ask your healthcare team to learn more about the pathology of your particular cancer, staying on this topic and the treatment options that are available to you and the future advances that could be in the horizon? Sure, so I really would focus
0: on making sure that I understand exactly what my histologic type is. So I would ask for a copy of my pathology report. Even if I can't really read it, it gives me the exact spelling that will help me you know, search for things. Um, our hospital has a patient portal so patients can see all of their results, but if that's not easy to navigate, I'm very happy to print copies for patients. Um, The next thing that I would ask for um, to make sure that I understand is, am I seeing a gynecologic oncologist? Am I seeing a specialist for my cancer? Or am I seeing someone who treats lots of different cancers and ovary cancer is one of them? Um, I think seeing a specialist is really important. I mean, when I go to get something done for my electric car. I don't just see the general mechanic because they generally don't know how to fix my car. Right. Um, I feel like it's kind of the same. I want somebody who spent their, you know, adult life working on my disease so that they are not only well-versed in how to treat it, but they're constantly learning about what's available for me.
1: Right.
0: Um, so those are the kinds of things I would really pursue first. And obviously like I feel that it's important to have an open conversation about prognosis so that it helps people plan. Not everybody's ready for that conversation, but I would, I know for me, that would be something I would ask.
1: Yeah, but uh, having said that prognosis, I mean, you know, like you said, not all of us are ready to, to get the facts on that. And I have also seen through the course of what I have done with our overcomers over the past decade or so sometimes it doesn't even come true, the prognosis. You know what I mean? Because people live through a lot of you know what the doctors say you have six months, you have five months but here. after 10 years they're still here and you know thriving and overcoming. So all of those are hopeful stories and in- inspiring stories And like you said we we there's so much to science that we still don't know. It's just you know treatment is one side of the cancer, but there are other like gut microbiomes, this and that which is the holistic. You know, person, and you don't know what is acting on her behalf to to make her break all the, you know, the assumptions and the prognosis. So more power to that, right? Patient power. So I'm all about that. So um, now, you know, we know that when trials are conducted, um, typically speaking, the endpoint is often like the progression-free survival or the overall survival that investigators, such as you, look into as a um, one of the goals um, but talk to us about you know where does the quality of life and the toxicity and you know all of this come into the picture and how do we kind of strike a balance when we are striving towards that end goal of meeting that 15.2 months of you know progression free survival yet there's a lot of toxicity involved and there's no balance so tell us a little more about that
0: This is a really great question. And I think it's something that we struggle with. Um, You know, the more drugs that we have, the more we're learning about how drugs hurt people. Mm -hmm. Um, At the same time, we're fighting a deadly disease. And so because the disease itself is so incredibly deadly and we are, we as providers, we as doctors are ready to take on some pretty hard to tolerate toxicity. Now, patients, should feel empowered to say, no, I'm not doing that, thanks so much. And I've definitely admired the patients that have been very clear about what kinds of things they're willing to try and not. Um, I think that as we continue to study a lot of these new drugs, toxicity is really important. And it's one of the main focuses of my work and um, several other people. Um, is to try to understand if there are sister drugs that are less toxic. Like once you find a great combo that you love, like, is there a drug that kind of hits the same targets and maybe is just as effective, but less toxic? Mm -hmm. Um, Is there dosing strategies? Like can we dose for five days on and two days off that could make somebody's quality of life better? Um, These are the questions that get answered later. Um, sometimes they get started in the clinic. We try to figure out what's really tolerable for patients and then go from there. Um, these are, but these are areas of you know, consistent study. We do have um, a goal, right, of improving overall survival. Yes. And progression-free survival, as you mentioned, is one of the trial endpoints. But it's a trial endpoint for two reasons. One, because we can use it as a surrogate marker. So most of the time, progression-free survival is similar to overall survival. So if you have lots of longer progression-free survivals, you get a longer overall survival. Yes. But sometimes that's not the case. We get like a long progression-free survival, but then when we add up all of our things, we didn't actually get the overall survival that we wanted, but that results, like the trial result, may take five or 10 years to know.
1: Yeah.
0: And so because of that, we... um. If we power studies and do studies that look only at overall survival, we don't have drugs very quickly. Yeah, don't move very quickly at all. I mean, it may take many, many years to get to an answer. It's not that those studies aren't important. It's just that it's very hard to gather data when the timeline is very long and we want it to be long. We want our patients to live a long time. It's just that ovarian cancer is truthfully a fairly rare disease. Um, And so we don't have a lot of patients um, to study and not all the patients participate in trials too. So, I mean, it's, there are many factors that lead us to, to struggling with that.
1: Right. And then, thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. Um, so when it comes to, you know, um, unmet needs in the treatment of recurrence in ovarian cancer, um, what are some of the uh, unmet needs according to you and how would you like to see them addressed?
0: Sure. So platinum-resistant ovarian cancer is an unmet need. It will be until we have a better set of drugs that really give people prolonged um, time off treatment would be amazing. Like right at this point, getting a remission and platinum resistant disease is a really, really rare thing. Um, I I think that's an area where we really need uh, to focus. And I know many people are. Um, Another area that I think we could do better on is um, toxicity management. So we know a lot of these drugs are toxic and have a lot of side effects, but getting into the weeds of patients early, making sure that we are supporting them, that all the drugs that can support them and make that drug you know, that are more tolerable or alternative therapies that may make it more tolerable, a specific diet, specific exercise, um, some focus on um, some of those kinds of things, I think is an area where we could do better.
1: I'll ask you one curious question when it comes to the toxicity versus the treatment, right? So we have also had um, some of the overcomers, few of the overcomers tell us that they had to get off of treatment or clinical trial because of the toxicity that they could not tolerate. Now, my question is that if you do, and they have reported they actually feel better they actually are able to do more with their lives, and you know, just go out and be normal and just like lead a normal life for uh, for a period of time. Now, my question is: let's say that uh, an overcomer stays off of treatment for six months um, to avoid the toxicity and is enjoying a good, you know, treatment-free interval, right? So. How quickly does the cancer catch up? Like if you are off of treatment for six months, enjoying your life, what is the cancer doing in the background that we don't know? It's
0: growing. I mean, how fast is very individual. For some patients, it's an extremely slow process. And so these treatment-free intervals make a lot of sense. For some patients, that treatment-free interval may mean the difference between being well enough to be treated when the cancer becomes symptomatic. The problem with ovarian cancer, there are many problems, but one of the main problems with ovarian cancer is that a very small tumor in a very wrong place can stop everything and make somebody so sick that they may no longer be able to be treated. Mm -hmm. And that's devastating Mm -hmm. because a person can go from being very well and doing pretty good to not being very well and doing poorly. And we may or may not be able to fix that problem. Hopefully we can, sometimes we can, but sometimes we can't. And we're in a difficult position when that happens.
1: It is a difficult um, decision, whichever way you look at it, right? Because at the point, if if the cancer is growing, I don't know what the rate of progression is in my case versus somebody else's case you know, in my case, it could be like two years, nothing has happened. And I'm still, you know, good. But, but although I would think in majority of ovarian cancers, the growth is much quicker than two years. I mean, if you let yeah. it be, like, it's, it's in the a,
0: majority it is but yeah. again, you can never, like you mentioned before, you never say never, like yeah. somebody might have something different, but it, it, tends to be a challenging conversation. I do a lot of treatment breaks though, for patients that are, you know, their fifth or sixth line of therapy to make sure that people have like nice times to do things on their list or to spend time with family, especially for major events um, in their lives, because that does seem to um, really help them. And sometimes the cancer therapy, we just need to take a break because the toxicity itself is causing some harm and we need to gain some health back, uh, and we may restart again. Um, That happens sometimes.
1: Thank you. So, you know, as you have noticed, probably that we definitely have, and many other organizations have kind of reframed the way we talk about ovarian cancer risk, right? So these days we are saying, instead of all women at risk, we are saying everyone with ovaries is at risk of ovarian cancer. So... Talk to us a little bit about the LGBTQ community and the systemic challenges that needs to be that need to be overcome to ensure not only early detection but timely treatment of ovarian cancer when it comes to this community and how maybe overcome these disparities that exist today.
0: Sure. So um I am a member of the LGBT community. I'm very out, very active, and I actually serve as the gynecologic surgeon for our transgender program here.
1: It is the... amazing to have someone like you <laughs> in this effort, right? Because we all want to see someone who understands where we are, wh- whichever you know profile or disease it may be. So thank you for representing. Sure. Yeah. So um, one of the... The
0: areas where I I see us um, being able to really help our patients is in focusing on um, demystifying the parts that we're born with, um, you know, helping people understand that gender is actually a social construct. The idea that feminine or women look a particular way uh, is, is actually a social ideal. Um, yes, we have biologic sex differences, um, but that's you know, not necessarily about our gender, our gender expression, uh, or how we feel uh, as individuals. And so allowing um, space for everybody to be who they really are and how they feel and to have a body that represents them as accurately as possible um, is, is ultimately our goal, right? That we can affirm how people feel inside on their outside. Um, one of the areas in cancer care that's really difficult is that the LGBTQ plus community has really struggled with medical mistrust. There yeah. have been a lot of times yeah. where people have experienced homophobia or discrimination, transphobia, um, discomfort uh, from providers or difficulty accessing what is a very vulnerable exam for any human being, but a particularly vulnerable exam for folks who are um, struggling with gender affirmation in their community. Yes. So how do we help them? Um, and one of the ways that uh, I think that folks can really uh, open the door is to uh welcome and recognize those people with ovaries who may look differently than than themselves um, and keep the door open for them to participate and feel supported um, by uh by you know supportive groups of, of like-minded people. Um, some of my uh, patients, uh, unfortunately with cancer, are also part of the LGBTQ plus community and having a provider that's out and in our community and available, willing to see them, happy to see their partners, happy to do exams that are particularly sensitive in a, you know, an understanding, uh, gentle and kind way. Recognizing when an exam is not necessary, I think, is also a particular um, uh focus uh, for us as providers to make sure we're not just doing everything the same way for every person. We wouldn't, that's not personalized medicine. (laughs) So we got to really keep the door open for making sure that we can help each patient achieve their best health in a way that's meaningful and supportive.
1: Absolutely. And so um, even for, you know, when it comes to just the awareness messages that go out uh, on ovarian cancer or any other kinds of cancers, you know, that could potentially be something that the lgbtq community also get i mean we need to we need to start there we need to sh- shape reshape our messaging to be more inclusive and to you know, empower this community to you know take that message and advocate for themselves and so it's it's just not st- it's not just the providers it's also the non profit organizations like us it, the friends and family the community we all have to work together because like you said i mean this is it's it's not it's not it's it's mostly a social construct. But you know we have to break all those bari- bar- barriers when it comes to healthcare and and access to healthcare without feeling any kind of you know uh, I don't know what's the word here. But you you need to be able to share what's going on with your health and not feel differently in any formal fashion. So, but um, in terms of, you know, because this is still, regardless how much ever we talk, it's still there. It still happens. I mean, maybe now you are leading this great effort and you're in LA and it's a different universe, but, you know, imagine a community setting hospital, you know, in a remote Kansas or something like that, where none of this exists and, and you know, it's, it's much harder for people from this community to access anything, you know, let alone understanding. So um, that's probably a little too harsh, but I'll go there anyway. But uh, just in general though, um, so because of this, I mean, do you see that they there's a gap in timely diagnosis that, you know, does it happen or? It can, I mean, for, it seems, ovarian
0: cancer um, diagnosis is difficult in any human, right? The symptoms are subtle. Um, They sneak up on you. It's really difficult to tell the difference between like a really bad takeout meal and feeling bloated, you know, uh, from uh, from a tumor or from ascites or something like that. I mean, it's just really hard to tell because the symptoms are subtle. They a little bit wax and wane at the beginning. It's just very difficult. That said, if a person doesn't feel like the medical community trust, that they have trust, right? Mm -hmm. A community, the first place they may go when they're feeling ill is maybe not not their doctor, maybe it's a friend or a colleague. Um, And so I think making sure that we encourage physicians to be available, um, starting those relationships, even in primary care will help get more people into the system and have good experiences. Um, to eliminate hopefully some of that medical mistrust. And, and I think it is a provider issue. It's a community issue as well, right? So, you know, we want to encourage everybody to find um, places where they feel comfortable, which means that all the spaces should get more comfortable. We should, to the best of our ability, really lean into answering the phone for any patient that calls, even if they have a male sounding voice. Exactly. Everybody who works with me, for example, knows that you know we just don't say anything. Oh, you want to see Dr. Rival? Well, sure, she's available. These are the days. Come yeah. on in. Like we don't have to get into the weeds on the phone. We really just take whoever comes to the door. Um, you know, uh, one of our bigger issues in LGBTQ plus uh, is can cancer screening for cervical cancer, uh, because a lot of people think they don't need it. Yeah. What we do, everybody with a cervix needs to be screened. It's not really related to ovary, but it's the same kind of situation where we're really trying to establish trust, help people understand what their needs are um, and make sure that providers are ready and willing to meet them where they are.
1: Absolutely, and thank you so much for sharing all these great insights with us. So um, I have asked you a lot of questions, but could you fill in the blanks of on anything I have missed in asking you questions that you would like to share with our overcomers today.
0: I don't think you missed anything. I think as the clinical trials, um, one of the clinical trials people here at Cedars-Sinai, I would really like to advocate for uh, folks reaching out to their providers about clinical trials. So even if the center you're being treated at doesn't have a trial for you, there may be one locally. Um, And most centers are happy to help you try to find those uh, studies. Um, there are lots of other uh, brain cancer organizations like uh, Overcome and others uh, that can help uh, help find trials that are open in your area. Location we talked about is actually kind of important. <laughs> um, so we do want to make sure that they are at uh, a reasonable distance, but those kinds of things can really help. Um, and they just provide an extra, just an, a, one more thing to try um, that may be really successful. All the drugs that we have now that are standard of care were once a clinical trial. Um, and it's exciting to see how far we've come, even in my short time uh, as a gynecologic oncologist, how many drugs have been approved since I started. So
1: I think that the the pace is continuing to increase um, and we just gotta keep doing this good work. Absolutely, thank you. Um, and so just in closing, this has been a great conversation, Dr. Rammel. Just in closing, what message of Overcoming would you like to share with our audience?
0: I think that, uh, this is a disease that can be overcome and that the choosing to to try and to um, choosing to think forward is a really amazing way of doing that. And so I appreciate all that you're doing and I thank you for letting me be here today.
1: Thank you, Dr. Rammel. This was a great conversation. And, uh, you know, as I always say to, to our followers that every single time we bring an episode guest, we we learn different things because you all bring different perspectives to the table. So thank you so very much for sharing your insights, your knowledge, and your, you know, in uh, your representation to the table for us today. So um, great conversation. Thank you again. And overcomers, hope this was beneficial for you. I know that I learned a lot from Dr. Rammel about, you know clinical trials about what's happening in the ovarian cancer space and her thoughts uh, which are so critically important on how we can make this better for our lgbtq plus community in not just the awareness but um you know timely treatment options as well for our friends out there so um with that we will be closing out for today but we'll be back with the uh, next episode of connect over coffee very soon until then you keep overcoming thank you and bye
0: Thank you for joining us. Make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by our sponsors, GSK and Clovis Oncology, and by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Be sure to tune in for our next episode. Cheers to overcoming.